Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is Great Big History Podcast, where we continue our History 102 lecture, lecture series. And in this one, we go into the catastrophe of World War I. So when we left off, we talked about how World War I was welcomed. People wanted to fight it. Uh, it was a chance for the guys in Fight Club to make a man of themselves and to prove their worth. It was a chance for all this national tension to be resolved. Uh, there were fights between unions and the government and businesses, and there was fights between different countries. And it, there wasn't violence, but it was a constant tension, a constant ratcheting up in the news. And people were like, you know what, I just want to get it over with. It's a very... um. Tupac Biggie, you know, East Coast, West Coast in the in the 90s. It was a, a lot of uh, diss tracks and a lot of like probing and insulting and like people wanted to have it out. It's like, you know, F you. I can do this. I can take you on. And third, it was a great adventure people thought would be over quickly so you wanted to be involved in it this this was true in the american civil war people joined up in the first first weeks of it because they didn't want to miss they want to be able to say i was there and the idea was oh before the leaves fall you'll be back home before by christmas now this is august 1914 so they're talking within six months basically the idea was there would be one big battle and it would be over That's essentially how the wars in 1866, 1871, the wars in Africa and Asia had gone. Like, the American Civil War was an anomaly. The Crimea War was a strange war indeed. And it was like, it was based in Crimea, there wasn't a lot of room for movement, it, and it was this, this two-year slugfest but the Crimean War really should have told the Europeans what was coming. And the American Civil War really should have told. These two wars in the 1850s and 1860s really showed what industrialization between uh, equal, par equal parties could do. Well, what they got was the largest war Europe ever fought up to that time it was it's only been passed by world war ii and it was the first european wide war since 1815 causes like there's a traditional and i've done it and i've talked with other professors about oh what were the causes of world war one and we go uh, militarism and and uh, nationalism, and it's this, this very AP high school list of things. The truth is, the causes were people wanted to fight. Masculinity, nationalism, boredom, poverty. It was a way of making something better for yourself. You got to join the army, you got three meals a day. You got new boots. You got to beat the shit out of somebody. Nationalism, hey, you ran up the score. You're French, the French win, good. Boredom. Dude, you're, 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 you're a stock boy. 
in a department store. Who, who treats you seriously? You work in a 7-Eleven. Who treats you seriously? Now you're a captain. Who treats you seriously? You're a private on the line. You're commander in the Navy. Suddenly you're a person of prestige. This is exactly that boredom. Never do not underestimate boredom in causing wars because that's ISIS. The terrorist group. ISIS would make videos, plop them up on YouTube, and their genius was to communicate with, with Muslims in European countries. And they would go, your life sucks. The Fight Club guys, your life sucks. You have a shitty job. You have um, no money. No one takes you seriously. Uh, the people around you, the white people, the Christian white people are treating you bad. Come here. Come here and be a man. Come here and make a country. Come here and make a caliphate. Come here. And the first thing ISIS did was let you choose a war name, a nom de guerre. You weren't Joe, stock boy of Walmart. You were Mustafa Ali, conqueror of Tikrit. So one of the causes people wanted to fight. They were bored with their lives. They were bored with their masculinity, fight club. They were tired. They were poor. They were hardworking, but poor. And this was a way of making some money. It was an adventure. as a way of being saying, I was there. And so it was able to pull in both rich and poor people at the same time. And it tied in, let's also, it tied into the Napoleonic and the Roman and the King Arthur stories. Here was your chance. The second thing was fear. And that's where the militarism and all these other things, all these isms come in. All these isms are just fear. If we don't fight now, it will get worse in the future. The odds are against us. It was a social Darwinist competitive theory. That's, it's, it all comes down to really this. That's what the militarism was. Why were they putting in so much money into armies and navies? Why? Because they didn't want to lose. They thought sooner or later we're going to have to fight. Sooner or later it's going to have to happen. So you might as well do it when we have the advantage. The world is divided into living and dying states. We've talked about this twice. Those who do not advance go backwards. Those who go back go under. This was very much the theory of the leading classes. And they were watching it happen. Germany arose in the middle of Europe from nothing. It was a bunch of Little states, it was 300 states, and then it was 20 states, and then it was now it's one giant state. France went from the leading state of Europe to not. Spain went to be in a basket case of poverty. It was the most powerful empire in the world in 1550. In 1910, who gave a shit? Who, who cares about Spain? Jeez, nobody wants Spain on their side. Spain doesn't even enter the First World War. 
Germany did not care enough about stabbing France in the back to get Spain to attack it. Why? Because Spain was useless in 1910 as an ally. So the idea was that you were either living or dying. So there's terrorists in the Balkans. They're assassinating princes. Austria is coming apart because Austria is 15 different uh, ethnic groups. It's the Slavs in the South. It's the Czechs. It's the uh, Slovenes. It's the Slovaks. It's, it's the Hungarians. It's all of these people. And it's coming apart. The German Navy is bigger than the British Navy, not in numbers, but in size. And the British Navy is divided. So the Brits are worried that the Germans might invade, invade uh, England. Germany needed to escape being surrounded. It had France on one side and Russia on the other. It needed empire and didn't have one. The Brits and the French took everything. And Russia had just lost to Japan. Russia is falling behind. It's becoming unimportant. Who's going to lead the Slavs? Who's going to be the Slavic big brother? If it's not Russia, who? And so there's all this fear. Fear of violence. Fear of chaos. Fear that things are the balance of power is changing. And so you get the war. There's there's a, the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand in 19, August 1914. Um, the Austrians then demand um, the Serbs, the Serbia, hand over their terrorists. You know, kind of like the United States did to Afghanistan, to the Taliban. The United States, you know, 9-11 happened. Twin Towers blew up. The Pentagon blew up. Two, three days later, everyone knew it was Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden was a guest of the Taliban in Afghanistan. And the United States said, okay, Taliban, um, we don't have much of a relationship, but you're going to hand him over, right? And the Taliban said, no, he's given us $20 million. He's helped us. He's a good friend of ours. No, we're not handing him over. And George Bush, the president of the United States, through diplomats, said, if you don't hand him over, we're going to invade you and conquer you. And the Taliban said, I'd like to see you try. And two weeks later, the Taliban was running away to Pakistan. Now, so this kind of like, how do you deal with terrorists? You tell the country that's harboring them to hand them over. And if they don't hand them over, you invade that country. Well, we did that in 2001. You know, it's happened. So this is not unusual. The difference is, is the Taliban then didn't get Mexico to invade us. That's kind of how World War I would have, you know, begins. It's the Austrians invade Serbia. They had a reason. Yeah, you could, you could parse it out of whether it was too much or too little, but they had a good reason. And we've seen it happen before. Harboring terrorists gets you in trouble. And... So they invade Serbia, right? And this was an old argument anyway. It was it was one of those fights that they wanted to, to, to clear out. What that meant was then Russia invaded Austria. Russia attacked Austria and said, no, 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 no. Serbia is our little brother. You can't invade them. We're going to invade you. 
So Austria turned to its ally, Germany, and said, uh, you're going to let the big Russian steamroller attack me after we got attacked by these terrorists? And Germany said, no. They have so much land that used to be Poland that's in the Russian West. We could use that. And so we're going to take that. We declare war on France. And you go, whoa, huh? Whoa, huh? The reason why they declare war on France is that France was allied with Russia. So if you declare war on Russia, France is going to declare war on you. And the idea was to attack France first, punch it in the mouth, knock it down, turn around, and then beat up the slower, bigger Russian army. So it was. So Germany had the problem, had to fight in two fronts. So which front did it want to fight on first? It figured the weak weakling French on our left will just smash them, punch them in the mouth, tell them not to F with us, and then we'll turn around and fight the Russians who will defeat, but we have to grapple with. They're bigger, they're heavier, you know. Oh, they're, you know. Like Goliath. We'll defeat them, but it's, it's going to take some time. So let's just beat the crap out of the French. And I know I'm using some harsh language. But this was the attitude. It, this is not nice. And so this 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 is an this is an R-rated class because the attitude was not oh why dear sirs let's have a let's have a royal rumble. No, it was kick the shit out of them and then move on. And so they declare war on France and then war on Russia and they invade France. Because they invade France through Belgium to get there faster, the English declare war on Germany to protect Belgium, quote-unquote, but it's really to protect France. You know, the idea that if the Germans beat up the French and then beat up the Russians, they're going to they're gonna own Europe. And then they could determine, like, Europe, you know, kind of like Germany does now in the EU, you know. That Germany would win the country and then make all the rules for like trade and stuff. And so the idea was it, it benefits England, it benefits Britain, benefits the United Kingdom if all these little states keep squabbling with each other. And so World War I begins. The first battle is the Battle of the Marne in 1914 in France. It's a German defeat. Had it been, it was within the suburbs of Paris, had it been a German victory, the war might have ended. It's a German defeat. The Germans get pushed back. But they're not crushed. The German army is too big. It's too powerful. And it got pushed back, and it got basically pushed back to a line of where its artillery was. To where its artillery could give it defense. And so the British and the French army coming rushing up, and this is over hundreds of miles, by the way. This is a giant front in of all these millions of men suddenly get bombarded by this massive heavy artillery, which means they can't get to the German soldiers to keep pushing them into Germany. And so what happens is everyone digs, and you get trench warfare. Everyone starts to dig because once the, the British and the French 
soldiers stop moving, their artillery comes up and goes on their German soldiers. And if you've ever had anything dropped on you from above, even if it's the rain, you know, get out of it. And so the first thing they do is start digging, 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 digging. And the trenches will go from the Swiss, Swiss mountains all the way to the channel. And then once you finish digging one line, you start digging a second and a third. And it goes backwards. And then your supply trains and there's food trains. And then you bring in trains, literal trains, into supplying these trenches. And they become cities underground mole people cities that fill up with water when it rains that are cook cooked by the sun right overhead in the summer um you dig into the dirt to make rooms and it becomes a war of artillery of boom 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 the ceaseless pounding of the guns on dirt above you. Will this be the one shell that goes through and blows up your room and kills you? Will this be the one that lands on top of your head? And so it's constant and constant. And they bring in more guns. And then they bring in bigger guns. They build bigger guns to shoot shells in deeper, to shoot further away, to shell Paris, to shell across the channel, to England, to, to London. Guns that could shoot 30 miles. Put giant naval guns on trains and use that. In 1915, so we have this stalemate and it's slaughter. It is just everyday slaughter. In 1915, there's an attempt to um, break the trench. So now the idea is to break the trench. And through 1914 and 1915, the idea was... Um, the mass attack. You try to overwhelm. So this is what's called over the top. And you blow a whistle. And you put up ladders. And all of these guys, 50,000 people, get up and they go running across what's called no man's land. The space. This empty, denuded space where there's nothing alive. And you run in a mass attack of 100,000 people trying to get to the trench. Of the other side, where then your sheer numbers will allow you to stab, you know, bayonet stab and shoot with your pistols and and overwhelm that. And then you can once you get that, you go to the next trench and you can overwhelm that and you'll be protected from the artillery because they won't want to bomb their own people. Turns out that what the Germans put up and what the French would later put up was barbed wire, American barbed wire. That's all you needed. You put up American barbed wire because you can't get over it. It gets stuck on your clothing. You get, it hurts your hands. It's, you have to cut, cut it. It slows you down. And then they plop down machine guns. <laughs> on turrets that go side to side, swivel turrets, like Han Solo and Luke Skywalker in New Hope. And all they do is go boom, 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 boom. And the people just die in rows. Die, 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 die. There's a famous tracking shot in All Quiet on the Western Front that if we're in class, I would show you where the tracking shot is. So it's on a rail. And it's they put the camera on a rail and they put it on the left. And they just slide it 
from the left to the right about 100 feet. And, and they intercut it with a German machine gunner going boom, 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 boom. And they just have the actors as they're charging. Fall, 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 left to right, fall. As the camera pans, left to right, fall, 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 fall. Just going. They just die in a row. And then this giant explosion just kicks up where an artillery shell happens and just kills 40 men in a, in a single shot. It is nearly impossible to overwhelm the trenches. The defense is so much more powerful than the offense in 1914, 1915. And so now comes the science and the invention at Ypres of poison gas. The idea was you fill gas, poison gas into the shells, and you shoot the shells into the trenches. Now the gas is heavier than air, so it sinks. So it sinks into the trenches. So this is Wilfred Owen in uh, Dulce et Decorum Est. Gas! Gas! Quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone, someone is still yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime, dim through the misty pane and the thick green light as under a green sea I saw him drowning. Mustard gas, sarin gas, gases that would be used or perfected, I guess you would say, for murder in World War II in the Holocaust are used here. And the idea was the, 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 um, you would drown. The gas turned your lungs and did what COVID did. It just destroys your lungs, uh, causing bleeding, causing uh, creation of fluid, and you would just drown. Your eyes would burn and you would just drown in your own fluids. So why doesn't poison gas win the day? Because the winds. Because it could blow. Because you can't own the trench. There was no way of clearing out the trench of the poison gas. So you have the gas masks. And so you now know, in the if you have the gas mask on, you now know the attack is coming at you. Right? Or you could retreat. And now the German army, the Germans are the ones who started using it, but everyone will use poison gas. A poison gas is now made illegal by the rules of war. And as far as I know, no side really used it much in World War II. I'm not saying it wasn't used, but it's not a major, major part of major battles. The Holocaust, on the other hand, is a whole nother story, and we'll get there when we get there. Um... But that's how horrible it is by World War II. Like people are like, yeah, we're not doing that. Um, but one reason why there's also less poison gas is World War II is much more mobile with its planes and its tanks. So you pre-show that you're not gonna win. You're not gonna you're not gonna overwhelm the trenches. Okay. So what about trying to win on the periphery? So the British go and they go to Gallipoli and try to knock out Turkey. The idea would be We'll knock out Turkey out of the war. We'll dominate the Eastern Mediterranean. The, the Turks hey, the Turks were against the Russians since the Russians attacked the Germans. The Turks attacked the Russians. And the idea was we would open up trade. 
uh, where Constantinople is to to Russia, and um, it would give us all of these territory. Like we don't really have to win in Europe to get rich. We could take over the Middle East. And Gallipoli turned into a mass slaughter. It is led in in practice by William Churchill. It is the thing that gets him fired. Like for people who are like William Churchill could do no wrong, there was Gallipoli. There was Gallipoli, and Gallipoli is such a mass slaughter. The men trapped on the beaches. It's a Normandy gone wrong. It's a Normandy if the the troops got shot as they got to the beaches and never got off. They hung. There's a movie with uh, Mel with a young Mel Gibson in it, and it's a lot of it's it's known as national trauma because a lot of those troops were Australian, New Zealand, British troops, and they be, were being led by British officers. Now remember, modern major general, remember that guy. That's that guy who knows how to how to how to land ships at sea and do a naval bombardment. Right, he doesn't know as much as a as a as a novice in a nunnery about warfare, and so it's just this mass slaughter, and it's such a national trauma in Australia and New Zealand that their soldiers, their soldiers were so badly led, and there's people who are now writing books. That's not true. Who gives a shit? It's part of the national history. It's like the people who write. You know, the Boston massacre was only three or four people. It's like, well, it was called the massacre at the time and people took it seriously. It was a national trauma in 1915 in Australia and New Zealand. And it was, we will not be led by these British again. F them. And they start to demand independence. Australia and New Zealand basically say, I'm out. I'm out. I'm done. I'm out of the empire. If we're going to be slaughtered like this, fuck off. Gallipoli was such a mass slaughter with whatever the revisionists want to write. And I mean, there are I have run into them on on Facebook and and Twitter. And it's like you get the World War One fanboys and you're like, guys, nobody liked World War One. No, I, I'm going to literally talk about this later. Nobody liked World War One. There's only one group that liked World War One, and it's not a group you want to associate with. Gallipoli was such a slaughter, we got two new countries, Australia and New Zealand. They were like, done, uh, we're out of the empire. At Verdun in 1916, the entire war started to change. The Germans said, well, we can't break through their lines. We can't get to Paris. We're not going to knock them out. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to murder as many Frenchmen as we can. Attrition became the goal. To win by simply killing more of them. To make, to make it such a slaughter. See, we're going to attack Verdun. And it's going to buckle their lines. Which means they're going to have to throw more men into it. And more men. And we're going to throw more men into it. And we're going to throw more men into it. But, but we, the Germans, have 20 million more people than they do in our population. So we can throw more men into this battle. And it's just, I mean, if there is a place on Earth called Hell called one of Dante's Inferno layers. If you've ever played D&D and you've gone to Avernus, you know, there's a there's a D&D uh, game uh, adventure called Descent into Avernus where you fight on the first level of the Nine Hells and it's the demons versus the devils fighting on the River Styx. This is it. It is Verdun. 
the closest man has come to creating Dante's version of hell is Verdun. Um, just hundreds of thousands of men thrown into this for no point. There was no strategic goal. The goal was to fight club. It was to murder as many Frenchmen as there were. It wasn't to break through. It wasn't to capture France. It was to make the slaughter so horrible that the country would say enough, just enough. And Verdun broke France in its sacrifice. Verdun also broke the German army. And it broke a hell of a lot of people. It killed hundreds of thousands of people. And it broke millions who had been there. And we're going to talk about that later. So the French beg the British, help us, help us, help relieve us. We can't keep doing this at Verdun. And so the British, who are in the northern part of the battle line of the trenches, begin the Battle of the Somme. The Somme is the worst defeat the British army ever suffered. And that's going back to when it got conquered by the Romans. 60,000 casualties in one day. And the Germans were pissed because the Somme was this quiet, it was a rest stop. It was, it was a relief area. It was a place where the Germans and the British, who traditionally didn't fight very much, didn't have an age or like the Gauls and the Germans go back to pre-Roman times of murdering each other. The Anglos and the Saxons are British. Are, the British are Germans. The Anglo-Saxons are German. And so there was always this, this idea in, in um, the Emperor of Germany, Wilhelm II, that, and, and Adolf Hitler will do it too. Look, look, Britain, come on, why are we fighting? We're friends. We're allies. Why, why are you picking the French? Why Be with us. Join us. And so it's kind of a, the Somme is not only a disaster, it's a betrayal of like this peace this un, un it was just this is peace in the middle of war where like you could go and rest and you could like oh all right i got put on the psalm front all right i'll hang out i mean you were still at war and people still died but it wasn't for done it wasn't a charnel house it wasn't the meat grinder it wasn't it wasn't the inferno and the british turned it into an inferno and they start with their artillery. And this, this is famously done by one of the British historians who talks about it. And it's just, it's a fucking disaster. And I'm, I'm passionate about the sum of all the battles because it's a useless battle. And it's the one that my British critics on Twitter and such will be like, no, it's, it's the, we, we got over 10 miles in one day. And, oh, this is where the British learned to lead. It's, they're dead. They were dead. Dead. 60,000 casualties in one day. 20,000, 30,000 dead. It was an entire generation of British youth out of Cambridge 
and and out of Cambridge and Oxford wiped out in one day. And then the battle went on for months. So you could imagine the slaughter that it is. You want to know, like, I get into these these fights, quote unquote, on Twitter with these people who are these World War One fanboys. And you're like, have you looked at your memorials? Have you walked around London? Have you? Because whenever you go to a World War One memorial and it says the sum on it, it's not a happy memorial. It's someone with a bandage on their head or their eyes blocked out because they got blinded by gas. It's broken. It's someone, you know, a woman, a nurse trying to hold up a dead body. It is awful. There is no memorial that's like, oh, we won. No, they got slaughtered and it went on for months. Months. It's a useless battle that accomplished nothing. And it slaughtered an entire generation of leading youth. Like, like, let's go back to Mary Poppins, right? We talk about Mr. Banks. Mr. Banks is too old for the war. He's not going to be in it. He'll be doing philanthropy. He'll be gathering uh, food, probably from the Americans, uh, using his bank connections. Um, his wife will be uh, uh, making socks, right, because of trench foot. And she'll be, she'll be doing the same She'll be putting together uh, philanthropy groups. Very important, but they're too old, right? Their children, too young. But Bert, Mary Poppins's on-again, off-again boyfriend, Bert. And you go, they didn't date. Oh, they totally dated. Because Bert says, I know you, Mary Poppins. Oh, yeah? How does he know Mary Poppins? Hmm? Hmm? The itinerant Bert. Bert is dead in the Somme. Bert is killed on the first day of the Somme. Terrified, he's blown up by a German artillery shell. Or, if he happened to get lucky, he got close enough to be machine gunned down. He died on the Somme. So when you're watching Mary Poppins, and he's playing his contraption drum thingy, remember, He's going to be shot in 1916 by a German bullet trying to run across a muddy, destroyed, ripped apart, terrible terrain in a useless battle he didn't have to be in. Bert is dead and he dies at the Somme. By 1917, we get the Russian Revolution. Things against the, the Germans do so well, they just crush the Russian army in the east, um, mostly because stuck in the west, unable to move. They basically picked up a lot of their army and said, okay, you guys hang out here and fight the French and shoot, shoot at the British. And then they moved it to the east and they let them loose in the open, in the open steppe of Poland. And it just crushed the Russian army. The Russian army was, didn't have enough shoes. It didn't have, it, Russia did not have enough industrialization to defeat the Japanese, much less the Germans. It didn't have enough rails. It didn't have enough food. It didn't have enough shoes. It didn't have enough guns. Like Russian troops were literally told, run behind the guys in the front. When they get shot, pick up their gun. Like, how is that for a strategy? And so the Russian army is so devastated that 
the Russian Russian society broke. Like what was supposed to happen to France happens in Russia, where the society is just like, we're done. We're done. We don't want to fight anymore. And the emperor's like, but, but, but what, but, but I said I would, I would fight. Uh, and if I don't fight, people will be mad at me. And the Russian people are like, we're mad at you now. Stop the war. Stop. Our families are being killed. We've, you've lost Poland. You're losing Belarusia. Like, the German army is coming. If they're not in the Baltic now, they will be soon. And it gets so bad, Tsar Nicholas so will not listen, that there's a conservative revolution against him. The Russian Revolution has two parts. There's a conservative revolution against him. To put in a conservative government that will continue the war, of all things. <laughs> They're like, oh, well, Tsar Nicholas is so terrible at this. We'll stay in it. We'll, all we need is new leadership. And they're like, ha I am Kerensky. I will win the war. And the Russian army said, we have no food. We have no bullets. We have no nothing. How are we going to win the war? And he said, uh, by, uh, by spirit, by attacking. Attack. And they got slaughtered by the Germans again. And basically the Navy just turned. The Navy started it, but then the Army. And they just turned on the Kerensky government and overthrew the entire system. And that begins the famous Russian Revolution, the October Revolution, which actually happens in November, but they are using the old style of dating. The October Revolution of the communist, of Lenin, of Trotsky, of overthrowing the government to change the system. They wanted an end to the government that started the war. Again, this is a revolution that didn't have to happen. If Tsar Nicholas, one, didn't go into the war, two, stopped the war, and three, after he was overthrown, um, Kerensky, the conservative government, ended the war, you wouldn't have had a communist revolution. At least, I'm not enough of a Russian historian to know, like, how, how close they were, or if Kerensky had enough ability to pull it back in. But Lenin and Trotsky's biggest argument was, we will end the war. So if there wasn't a war, you wouldn't have to have ended it. You wouldn't need the communists. That's the way I look at it. So in 1910, we have Europe dominated by these, these major giant empires and a few other smaller states, right? Sweden and, and Norway and Denmark, um, Greece in the south, right? By 1920, it's a mess of, of countries. Romanian, Bulgarian, Hungary, and the Czech. Czechoslovakia, a new Poland, a Poland's back, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, right? We get all of these new countries, especially in the East and the Southeast. We have the breakup of empires. We have the breakup of the traditional order. Europe is in chaos. Kings are deposed. Weak republics. Ethnic wars in those weak republics to create ethnic states. See, if you're in, if you're in Hungary, you've got a problem because you were in the Austrian Empire, right? Which meant Austrians and Romanians and Slavs and Czechs all lived inter all mixed, right? Well, now you want a Hungary for the Hungarians. So what happens? You start slaughtering the other peoples or you invade the country of the other peoples in order to absorb, get your people back. 
So World War I was the war to end all wars, but in Eastern Europe and Southeastern Europe, it started even more wars. Kind of 1993, Yugoslavia, civil war, like where, who's going to live where? And are you going to be on your side of the border or the other side of the border? Are you going to be a minority in someone else's country, some other ethnic? Am I going to be Hungarian in Romania? Am I going to be a Romanian in Hungary? Or am I going to be a Hungarian in Hungary and a Romanian in Romania? And those are suddenly these vicious wars because those wars are not about so much about territory as about murdering people. Uh, the biggest one, probably the biggest and most devastating one is what happens in Turkey in the 20s is Turkey is essentially the Ottoman Empire is essentially broken up. The Middle Eastern Arab parts are basically taken over by England and France. But the Asia Minor is is given to Greece, Italy. Um, the Caucasus are suddenly freed. And so there's the, the Turkish military elite who are like, no, we're not losing our country. We're not losing because the sultan was a jerk. No, we're not doing that. And suddenly there's this huge amount of wars. And then there's the Armenian genocide where the Turks basically commit the first genocide of the 20th century by just murdering the Armenians. And I've, you know, there's, I may never get into go and visit Turkey because of these videos, but I grew up living next to a neighbor of mine was a survivor of the Armenian genocide. An old, old woman um, who was a refugee. And if you listen, you, you read uh, Hemingway's, Hemingway's dispatches from this time period, he talks about the Greeks being kicked out of, of Asia Minor that were still there along the coast and how they turned into refugees trying to flee to Greece. And the Greek-Turkish Hatred for each other still is still going on. It's on Crete right now, or Cyprus. It has broken up Cyprus. Cyprus is two different countries for all intents and purposes. A Turkish part and a Greek part. Um, the Armenians, Armenia goes from a sizable large country in, in Eastern Asia Minor uh, to nothing, to this little tiny piece that is that was basically owned by the Soviet Russians. Um Asia Minor becomes a shit show and it's all murder for the next 10 years, basically, throughout the 20s. <sighs> what are our results? We have the breakup of empire, traditional, the traditional order. Eastern Europe is in chaos. Kings are deposed. We have weak republics, right? It is a catastrophe. 20 million dead in the war, 21 million more wounded. If you're watching the video, we have John Singer Sargent's famous painting of Gast, the people who have been blinded and they're, they, they're trying to walk through the dead bodies, um, hand on each other's shoulders, trying to hold on to each other. They, they are blinded. They cannot see, right? They're broken. These are broken men. But that was what poison gas did. France, Belgium, quote unquote Poland, because it wasn't Poland at the time, but the land was the Polish lands of the Vistula, the Vistula, 
the lands that I I spend most of my research studying for my dissertation because that's what the Swedes needed to conquer uh, royal what's called then royal Prussia um, it's all blown up the the France a third of France is just devastated by the war Belgium is occupied and blown up the, these lands were the with the German and Russian armies are fighting, which was these Poland lands of the Vistula and uh, beyond, are just ground up. The merchant marine is sunk. Like the trade by submarines, German, mostly German submarines, though the British and Americans have submarines too, is basically any merchant ship got sunk, which means international trade is done until you can rebuild all of these ships. And who's paying for that? You gain women's rights and welfare, the welfare state. You get the invention of the welfare state. Why? And you get women's rights. Like, Mrs. Pankhurst got cast in irons and she, in 1910, and 10 years later she has the right to vote. Why? Because women needed to work during the war. So they sacrificed their husbands and their sons. And so they deserved rights. This is an argument that goes back to Lysistrata during the Peloponnesian War. The idea that the men, the general goes to Lysistrata and goes, why should we listen to you? You haven't, you haven't sacrificed anything. The men die in battle. And Lysistrata looks at him and goes, are you fucking insane? We haven't sacrificed? My husband's dead. Her sons are dead. We work to make clothes, to make armor. We sacrifice. We don't sacrifice? Who? What? Who? What? So this is an argument that goes all the way back to Lysistrata, that women sacrifice. The Romans, let's be honest, the Romans gave citizenship to women because they recognized your men are going off to war, whether you like it or not. So you are sacrificing. So women had citizenship. Women, female Romans were citizens with protections in the law. They didn't have equality, but it comes closer to equity, that they were treated as citizens. They had rights. Plus, with 20 million people dead who are mostly men, there are so many widows, orphans, wounded, that the state needs to help people. You can't go, oh, well, your son is dead. Good luck with that. Oh, your, your husband has had his arm blown off and he's blinded by gas. Good luck getting a job. Like, the state needed to pay people. The state needed to pay reparations. The state needed to pay unemployment because these people couldn't work anymore. The state had to step in because the state was the only one with the money. And so to defend these changes, to make sure that a conservative government didn't come in and go, you know, you know what we promised in 1916 during the Psalm? Well, that's expensive. So what if we, to defend those changes, women get the right to vote in 1919, 1920, and in every major country, in Belgium, in France, in every major country that took place, took, took part in the war, except weirdly for France, and I don't know why. France suffered the most during the war and yet didn't give women the right to vote. So there's just some weird masochistic machoism going on there. But in everywhere else, the idea was women got the right to vote because they would vote to protect the welfare state. They would vote against conservatism, which would want to bring back those changes. They were, they were given the right to vote to protect 
them as widows and orphans. And there's an entire book about the welfare state that I have by Theta Scotchpole about widows and orphans and the welfare state. And it's like, you can't say these women didn't deserve it. You can't say the orphans didn't deserve it. They, their fathers got blown up defending France. They deserve it. They earned it. And someone has to take care of them. Fourth, science is terrifying. It's effing terrifying, man. The massive artillery guns, they never ran out of shells. Never. They pounded away 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day. And that got us what we, we the first kind of psychological idea of trauma is shell shock. The first idea, because you couldn't ignore it, because everybody had it. It was, it was, so it was shell shock. And um, George Carlin has a very famous statement about how over time we use language to, to, to make war less hurtful so that we could do it more. Like he goes in World War One, it's called shell shock. I mean, it tells you what it is. The shells broke your nerves. By World War Two, it's combat fatigue. And now it's post-traumatic stress disorder. It has nothing to do with war whatsoever. It's bloodless. It doesn't have anything to it. It sounds, it sounds like a medical condition. Oh, I have post-traumatic stress disorder. What about you? Oh, I also have a disorder. But it's okay. I get a shot every Tuesday. Instead of war is so horrible, it has broken your mind. There's poison gas. So even breathing can kill you. There's the trenches and the barbed wire and the machine guns means massive casualties. Trying to fight a battle. Tanks are these monstrous, loud machines that, you know, the airplanes drop, drop death on from above. So even the sky is dangerous. These monstrous machines come rolling over, collapsing trenches right on top of you. Breathing out, having these giant guns in the front. Breathing out smoke and gas. There's the flamethrower. The Zeppelin. The Zeppelin allowed for the bombing of cities. Like London got bombed by Zeppelins. The submarine. So that you could be on the ocean and then dead. And the submarine can't pick up survivors. There's no room. So you're left to drown or get eaten by sharks. That's the famous speech in in Jaws about the tattoo. Oh, I know, I know what that tattoo is. It says "Mother." Hoopa, that there is the USS Indianapolis. You you, you were on the Indianapolis. <laughs> what's what's the Indianapolis, Chief? We were two days out of Tinian. After delivering the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb, got slammed by two torpedoes. Thirteen hundred men go in the water. Three hundred men came out. Sharks took the rest. Chief, I'll never put on a life life jacket again. It's this whole speech about being in the Pacific for days while sharks ate the people. Because the life vest meant you didn't drown. Or until the life vest 
fills up with water itself and sinks sinks you. So now just being on the ocean can get you killed. There's the American invention of the shotgun, which the South African army will turn into the street sweeper, a way of just obliterating large crowds. The shotgun was made to clear. It was a small gun that you could hold close to you and it could clear out a trench. The scatter shot of the shotgun was trench wide. And so you just shot it right. You didn't aim because you couldn't aim. The pistol you had to aim, you might miss. The shotgun, you just held straight. You put it at your, at your waist and you pulled the trigger. Boom. And just obliterated into a, into a red mist everything in front of you. The Germans tried to get the shotgun included in the rules of war along with gas to get, to get made illegal. What are the consequences of all this? Trauma. Literal trauma in the storm of shell shock, but also figurative trauma. You get memorial days. You have your unknown soldier graves. You have your sad memorials anywhere. This is what I don't get about the, the World War I fanboys who are like, oh, they learned so much. They, oh, they, by 1918. It's like, have you seen the memorials they put up in 1922, 1924? 1928, 1931, none of them are happy. Not a damn one of them are triumphal. They have names on them about all the people who, from the town that were dead. You have a Memorial Day. You have Armistice Day. They still celebrate it. You watch your British Premier League. They still have the, the, the flowers from Flanders Fields, the poppies that they wear. That's not World War II. That's World War I. And everybody wears it. It's a sign of nationalism and a respect and remembrance of a war that there is literally no one alive who fought in. Literally every veteran of World War I in the entire world has died. They're all dead. And yet, God forbid you, if you are a football player or a football coach or a commentator on BBC and not wearing your poppy, ho, 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 ho. You think it's a big deal when, when Colin Kaepernick knelt for the national anthem and Donald Trump had a meltdown over it? You can you haven't seen nothing compared to how the British feel about not wearing the poppies. Freud will go on to write civilization and its discontents. Notice he doesn't write about civilization and its happy people. No, it's civilization and its discontents where he tries to explain WTF, what just happened. And he comes up with the death drive, the death wish, Thanatos. For those of you who are Avengers fans, you kind of know this. The idea of Thanatos is destruction is pleasurable. That building takes time and building is good. And you can say, I made this. But it's also fun to destroy it. And if you've ever made a, a sandcastle and then somebody else comes along and crushes it, or maybe you crushed it yourself. It felt good. <laughs> I crushed that. Well, that's your death drive. Thanatos. Notice in the Avengers, what does he do? Is it Thanos? What does he do? He kills half the universe's people. 
Spider-Man, I don't feel so good. Gone. He murders half of them. It's a death wish. He wants... And so in, in there's a great scene, it's a violent scene, but in Fight Club, after, after Edward Norton has beat, 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 beat one of his allies, he's broken his nose, he's broken his face, he's knocked his teeth out. Brad Pitt's like, where did you go, psycho boy? I mean, why did you give in to so much violence? And Edward Norton goes, Thanatos, I felt like destroying something beautiful. Well, that was Western civilization. That was World War I. We see the trauma in poetry. Wilfred Owens, anthem for a doomed youth that in class we would play with Sean Bean doing it. What passing bells for these who die as cattle. Does that sound triumphant? Does that sound like an adventure? Only the monstrous anger of the guns. I love in all of poetry. There's a couple of lines I love. Many of them come out of Coleridge. I love that line. It is a line that's so to the monstrous anger of the guns. Only the stuttering rifles rapid rattle can patter out their hasty horizons. No mockeries now for them. No prayers, nor bells, nor any voice of mourning save the choirs. The shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells and bugles calling for them from sad shires. The monstrous anger. Anthem for a doomed youth, 1917. Tell me that's not trauma. That's a man who's in the war, writing about it at the time. And he's right. Anthem for a doomed youth. He's looking around at all the young men and he's like, we're all going to die. And he was not wrong. But the poetry after the war is just as, just as traumatic, just as traumatized. Yeats, turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. That's 1919, Second Coming. Now remember what Mr. Banks is worried about. Disorder. Anarchy. And Yates is talking about that's what's happened. The center cannot hold. It is falling apart. It is, its strings are detaching. The empire is collapsing. Things are falling out into space. The end of attack by Siegfried Sassoon in 1918, where he describes in one of the most vivid, vivid details, and in class we would play this, but in most vivid details of, of what going over the top is like. The last lines are the most famous. It's, the, it's, 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 it's known, it's a famous poem about its description of what a World War I charge is like. But it's the last line. Oh, Jesus, make it stop. That's trauma. And in 1925, T.S. Eliot would write The Hollow Men with perhaps the most famous couplet or quadrant, quatrain in modern poetry. This, now, he's writing before the H-bomb, before the hydrogen bomb was invented. So his idea of the end of the world is this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. The idea was old men had slaughtered the youth of Europe and had done so with orders and stupidity and their old great tales of King Arthur and Sir Caradoc. 
this is this comes out of uh, all quiet on the western front when the man when the main character of the story goes back home and he's wandering around he's like i'm not normal anymore no one's like me they're acting like they're going and buying shit in walmart like it's normal like this is not normal and everyone's like hey how you doing buddy what are you doing well i'm i'm going to war I'm returning from the war. Oh, kick those French guys in the butt, will you? Send them to send them home in a casket for me. Yeah, okay. And he goes to his old school. And he goes to his old schoolmaster, who's saying the same poetry. The King Arthur, the great heroes, uh, Siegfried. And he's listening to it, and he's like, and the kids are like, oh, when will we get to fight our great war, uh, teacher? And he's like, well, one day, son, one day. Well, that was going to be World War II, by the way. He, nobody knows that yet. Well, one day, and the kids leave, and the kid guy's like, that's not how it is. You're lying to them. You're filling their heads with stories like you filled my... All of my friends are dead. All of the classmates, they're all dead. And the teacher's like, that's the heroism of war. You know, what? whatever his, re- his response is, what do you want me to do about it? Somebody's got to teach him that war is great. What am I supposed to do? Teach him war sucks? If I taught him war sucks, no one would want to go to war. And it's the most famous part of All Quiet on the Western Front because it shows that the military person is separate from the society that they're protecting. This, this becomes part of the very famous, this is made famous by Hemingway, uh, but it's Gertrude Stein's quote, is that you all are a lost generation. That the 1920s, the men who come out of World War I are lost. They have, no, they, have, they have no purpose. They don't know what to do. They have been churned up by the First World War. And now what do they do? What is there to do? And so they are the lost generation. <sighs> Consequences. Conservatism loses. It was their war. It was conservatism's war. And it went on for too long for no gain and obliterated the old order. The youth were dead. The kings were discredited. Church elders' stories were all wrong, as we just talked about in All Quiet on the Western Front. And liberalism is now on the move. More democracy in Europe. More new countries. And those countries are going to be republics. They're not going to be kings. They're going to be um, more democracy in countries. We're going to get women to vote. We're going to get the poor to vote. We're going to get the welfare state replaces the Protestant work ethic. In Europe, no longer could you say, lazy bum, just go get a job. It's like, I lost an arm in the war. Well, then you should get some unemployment money then because you sacrificed. Thank you. You know, so the welfare state replaces the idea of the rugged individual in Europe, of the just the Protestant Max Weber's Protestant work ethic that you you make money by working. Well, you can't work anymore. Twenty million people can't work anymore because they're wounded by the war, and you might as well go with another twenty million are traumatized by the war with with what we would call PTSD. And so we get the crisis of the twenties. Can we return to normal, quote unquote? That's what the Americans will ask. And that is a reactionary. That is not conservative. That's reactionary. Can we go back to 1910? Can, can King Edward not be dead? Can we go back to the age of men? Can we make Mr. Banks the head of the, uh, head of the uh, manager of a bank again? 
or do we have to create something completely new? And if we have to do that, what is that? And that's liberalism. Liberalism is going to say, we have to make something new. Conservatism is dead. Conservatism in the Burkean sense of it is over. You cannot continue after World War I the way things were and just make it a little bit better. No, 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 no. Conservatism is now reactionary. It's now revanchism. It is, we have to go back before the war, let loose all of these liberal ideas. And there is only one group, and they're a conservative group. They're a reactionary group. But there is only one group that's upset the war is over. Fascists. Fascists saw World War I as the fight club ideal. Men were men. Women were unimportant. We lived in the moment. We died for the fatherland. What the fuck do I do now? What am I going to do now in the 20s? What am I going to do? Go back to a work? How do I go to work? How do I work tallying up numbers when I used to try to conquer France? How do I go back to like performing street music when I used to play in brothels in Bremen? How do I, how, how do I be boring again when we had the greatest adventure of our lives? The fascists, the earliest fascists are all ex-soldiers and they liked the war. They thought the war was purity. They thought the war was honest. They thought the war was purpose. And now we're going to go back to capitalism? All the things Robert Brooks complained about. The fascists were like, we're going to go back to that? No. So we're going to create a world that is a new World War I world. We're going to make the world World War I should have created. Which is a world of empire and death and masculinity and testosterone and violence, unending violence. So what does the world look like by 1920? And we'll just do this quickly. Well, by 1920, the USA is the richest, most powerful country in the world, but it doesn't want to lead it. It's isolationism. And we're going to talk about conservatism in the 1920s, which is big in the United States. Um, they don't want to lead it. They want to be isolationists. They're like, look, we'll sell you stuff, but we don't want to be a part of your murder hobo world. Britain and France are bankrupt and traumatized. They have the welfare state. They have to help their citizens. They're also trying to be conservative. They're trying to put back the genie back in the bottle. They're trying to be, I just said it was over. But that doesn't mean people weren't living in the delusion that it could continue, that you could just be with a little couple of changes, 19, maybe, not, maybe not 1910. But what about 1913, maybe? Right? Maybe? You know? Monarchy is over. Kings are done. They're murdered or deposed. The Russian Revolution murdered their entire royal family. Daughters and all. Albania, their king is opposed. Austria, their king abdicates, and then Austria, the empire, breaks up into five or six different countries. Germany, deposed. He's going to move to the Netherlands. The Montenegro king, deposed. Greece, you have one king assassinated and another king deposed. The Ottomans, deposed. Spain, deposed. And the emperor 
is deposed in 1911. So it's not tied to World War I, but you are also talking about I throw it in because it is the end of 5,000 years, or at least 2,500 years of emperors. But it's 5,000 years of a Chinese world order built around a central government leadership of not a republic. So it's, it's one of the great kings overthrown. Right, so King's monarchy is over by 1920. No one is look, very few people are looking at their kings and going, "Let's give them more power." Even in my my Sweden, in Denmark, in Norway, where the kings will survive, they get less power. The 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 parliaments will take over more power. Um, empires in Europe are over, and they're going to be replaced by weak, weak republics. Russia, Austria, Ottoman Empire all break up. Germany loses most of its East German and Polish possessions in the east ireland becomes independent of the uk austria new zealand south africa and canada all become quote self-ruling dominion states they're basically independent they were white countries south africa of course being a uh, white minority rule uh australia new zealand canada all having wiped out their for their all intents and purposes their indigenous populations and so they're given, oh, self-rule. But self-rule is just the next step to independence. They're all, they're effectively, they got the queen, they're going to have the king on the money. But in every other way, they're effectively independent. Non-Europeans are going to want European want independence from the Europeans. They looked at them, especially, this is especially true in India, going, Europe isn't so tough. Europe just broke itself. You know? Why should you get to lead us? You people are in crazy. And so you start to get these massive independence movements that are going to keep going and keep going and keep going through the 20s and into the 30s. Um, what stops them basically is the depression. You know, because the, the world economic system breaks down and, all right, if you're going to be an independent Mali in North Africa, how does that help you? At least if you're part of the French Empire, you get French goods and you can sell to the French market. Um, if during the Depression, if you were an independent country, you're completely screwed. But after World War II, we're going to get in our part three of our course, decolonization. Basically, countries are going to be like, all right, that's done. We were really done after the first war. We're totally done after the second war. And finally, Japan. Japan is the biggest player in Asia. It's clearly the, the most powerful nation in, in East Asia. But it's not getting any respect. And it's pissed off by that. China is coming apart with civil wars and its warlords. Um, the Europeans continue to own empires, but not have very much control over them. And so this is, this is ripe for Japan to say, well, we'll change this. We'll change this order. This order is dying. China, the traditional big bad the traditional power in east asia is falling apart so the getting is good to take over parts of china uh, especially that part of manchuria where all the mineral wealth is uh the european empires in indonesia and southeast asia are weak they have no people in them they have no colonists there they're barely defended and the people there don't like them so that could be taken over and so there's a move in Japan to be like, we can create a Japanese empire in the East. This is our time. 
the 1920s into the 1930s, the one thing stopping it from happening, the one major thing is that American Navy based in the Philippines and especially the one in Hawaii. That that American Navy is too powerful. That American Navy could mess up everything. And that's some foreshadowing now, isn't it? The point of my results is that the world has changed. It has changed. And if it's not, the places where it hasn't changed, it's careening off a cliff of change. Either people recognize, like in Ireland, the UK is over in Ireland. It is over, right? But in Northern Ireland, where they're going to hold on, we're going to get a civil war that's going to go on until basically the 1990s. We're going to get terrorism. We're going to get violence. We're going to get murder. We're going to get um, uh, uh, concentration camps. So in places where, it, where the traditional order is trying to be held, it's, it's careening off a cliff. Anyway. That's India, right? India in 1925 looks like it's owned by the British. On every map I could find, it will say British India. Ha! Huh? But if you do any digging at all, the British are falling apart there, barely able to hold on. And if any, if there was any completely mass movement, like there will be in the 40s, if there's Gandhi in the 20s, the way there's Gandhi in the 40s, India would have broken in a way earlier. So, because remember, India sent troops to the Western Front. India sent troops to the East. Indian troops fought for the British Empire. African troops fought for the British Empire. I don't talk about it, really, but you now have, and I could put that with the non-Europeans want independence, you now have a generation of black and brown men who know how to fight with European weapons, who know how to fight with European tactics, have seen the Europeans murder each other, and are like, they're not so tough. We could fight. We could do this. We can kick them out. So the question by 1925 is not, will these empires continue? It's how do they end? So in our next bunch of classes, we're going to talk about the 20s, liberalism and conservatism in the 1920s, because what the... Everything has changed. The entire world has changed. The question now is, what is that world going to look like? Is it going to be a conservative world where you kind of hide and try to go back to 1910? Or is it going to be throw open the doors and the windows, let the sunshine in and create something new? Warts and all. And that's the great question. So be careful. Take care. I'm sorry that this was such a terrible, um, blood-soaked uh, class. Thank you for going with me on this one. And don't ever be a World War I fanboy. It's, 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 there's no future in it. The, the people who fought in it weren't fanboys of it. So, take care, be safe, and now you know why Thantos is is Thantos in the Avengers. <laughs>